Well, through the ages, God raised up great preachers to proclaim the excellencies of Christ, and one of those men was Charles Spurgeon. By the time Spurgeon was 20 years old, he had preached over 600 times. His son, excuse me, his son said of him, there was no one who could preach like my father. In inexhaustible variety, witty wisdom, vigorous proclamation, living entreaty and lucid teaching with a multitude of other qualities, he must, at least in my opinion, ever be regarded as the prince of preachers. His published sermons are the largest set of books by a single author in the history of Christianity. Spurgeon preached without amplification to 5,000 people on a weekly basis and on one occasion to over 23,000 people without a microphone. It has been estimated that during his lifetime he preached to 10 million people and it is said that while Spurgeon was testing the acoustics of a certain agricultural hall, he shouted, Behold, the Lamb of God who taketh away the sin of the world. And a worker high up in the rafters of this building was converted. The best preacher I've ever heard said that Spurgeon had, quote, extraordinary gifts and remarkable qualities that set him off in ability and accomplishment in a class almost by himself. Spurgeon was great. But compared to Jesus, Charles Spurgeon was a stuttering mess. No historical figure ever spoke with the eloquence and influence and proficiency of Jesus Christ. They said of Jesus, no one ever spoke like this man. Who can compare to the one who is truth? And I pray you hear Jesus and are captivated and forever changed. I hope you hear him and grow. Hear him and delight in God. Hear him and give your life to faith-filled obedience. What he said has the power to give life. So listen, believe, and live. Real belief is drinking and enjoying Jesus as soul refreshment. We keep coming back to the purpose of John's gospel. He wrote it to lead us to believe that Jesus is the Christ, God's Son, and that through belief we might live. Every detail of John's gospel works to persuade toward belief. Jesus stood up on the great last day of the Feast of Booze and he began to shout, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He defined authentic belief. To really believe is to drink and enjoy Jesus as the utmost refreshment of the soul. What Jesus means by coming and drinking becomes evident when he says in verse 38, whoever believes. So he's telling us what drinking and coming and thirsting is all about. He used the same language uh, with the Samaritan woman at the well in John 4. And then in John 6.35, he said, whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And later he talked about drinking his blood for eternal life, which is synonymous uh, with belief. And many people misunderstand belief. They misunderstand what faith is. According to Jesus, it's not admitting God exists. It's not trying really hard to be moral. It's not being religious. It's not trusting God will make you healthy, wealthy, and prosperous, as many word of faith teachers espouse. Real belief begins with being thirsty. You must first admit, I'm thirsty. 
To be thirsty is to need a drink. Thirst is a spiritual need. We are dry and arid dust with spiritual life, without spiritual life and vitality. And we have a need for the water of God to be poured into us. What is our greatest spiritual need? We need a Savior. We need a Redeemer. Someone to pay off our sin debt to God and give us the perfect righteousness we need to be in the presence of God. Our greatest need is a spiritual need. A thirst for redemption, reconciliation with God, salvation from our sin, liberation from the bondage of slavery to unrighteousness. Without Jesus Christ, we are dead in our trespasses and sins, and we thirst for life. That is our thirst. To be thirsty is to be in need of Jesus. If you know you're thirsty, then Jesus says to you, come to me and drink. His words evoke images of Isaiah 55, 1 and 6. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters and he who has no money. Come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. This means we are spiritually impoverished. We're poor. We have no spiritual currency. We have no means to get a drink for our thirsty soul. But Isaiah says that if you're thirsty... And spiritually poor, you need only to come and receive and to drink of Jesus, to drink from God. He pays. He buys your drink. He pays for our soul drink with His Son. Now, we are all prone to think that we can pay for the drink ourselves on our own righteousness if we just allow our good works to outweigh our bad works. But we are spiritually impoverished. We are spiritually poor. We have nothing to pay with. We must admit we cannot pay, and belief trusts in Jesus' ability to pay for us. Jesus said in Revelation 21.6, To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. Then in Revelation 22.17, Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. You can't buy eternal life from God with good works that you've stored up in your spiritual and moral bank account. You have no moral cash. Belief is trusting and enjoying the boatload of cash that Jesus has accumulated. If you're really thirsty, you can get a drink for free, and it's ever refreshing. Jesus tastes good to the thirsty soul. So drink. Is that the kind of belief you have? Can you honestly say, I am drinking deeply from Jesus and enjoying him as refreshment? What Jesus shouts next is one of the most spectacular and wonderful certainties for everyone who drinks of Jesus by faith. Real belief results in God overflowing from the heart. We just have to get this point. It is too powerful and amazing to overlook or to misunderstand. During the Feast of Booths, uh, the Jews observed what was called a water ceremony. And a priest would dip uh, out some water from the pool of Siloam and parade it up to the temple. And he would enter through the water gate. Trumpets sounded. The people uh, recited together Isaiah 12, 3. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. The water was sacrificed to God as remembrance of his 
a provision of water for Israel in the wilderness from the rock and also to remember God's provision of rain for the crops of the earth in this great celebration. And and Jesus shouted on that last day, whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. That is just impeccable timing. What did Jesus mean? Verse 39 explains. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Jesus was the fulfillment of the water ceremony. He would pour out the Holy Spirit to live in believers and to flow from them like gushing waters, like gushing rivers. Think about that. God living in man, taking up residence in us overflowing from man. And I don't think that Jesus was quoting a specific scripture here, but offering a compilation of several uh, Old Testament passages. Maybe Psalm 36, 8 and 9. You give them drink from the river of your delights, for with you is the fountain of life. Jesus may have had Isaiah 44, 3 in mind. For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offering and my blessing on your descendants, offspring rather. Perhaps Isaiah 58, 11 was in his mind. And the Lord will satisfy your desire in scorched places and you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. Whatever text Jesus had in mind, he meant that every believer would receive the Holy Spirit to flood their heart and pour out. Do you remember what Jesus told the Samaritan woman at the well in John 4:10 and 14? If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and what? He would have given you living water. Whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty forever. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. What imagery Jesus used. How amazing to be thirsty and have the ever-pouring and ever-gushing water in you to satisfy you. When Jesus said this at the feast, the Holy Spirit had not yet been sent. Jesus would send the Spirit at Pentecost after he ascended in fulfillment of Joel 2, 28 and 29. God gave Israel from uh, water from the rock in the wilderness. He sent rain from heaven to water the earth and their crops, and they celebrated that at this feast. And in similar fashion, Jesus the Messiah would pour forth his Holy Spirit on men and women to dwell in them, the power of God in them on all believers Now, the Holy Spirit was at work in the Old Testament, but in a different way. Now, he would indwell believers. Truth and discernment would be in believers. The Spirit would give them power to fight sin and to win. The power to love others as Christ loved, to live joyfully in the Lord, to have peace amidst the storm, to practice patience when they are wearing thin, to treat even their enemies with kindness, to practice goodness, to be faithful to God in their commitments, gentle in relationships with others, and to control themselves in 
the whole in holiness. This is the overflow of the Spirit in the life of believers from their heart. Now, how is it possible for rivers of living water to overflow from a sinful heart? Think about that. I am not above sin. I still struggle and so do you. So how is it possible for rivers of living water to overflow from sinful hearts? Read verse 39. For as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. For the Spirit to be given, Jesus needed to be glorified. Meaning Jesus needed to endure the cross. Jesus needed to defeat death and to return to the Father. Through the cross, the Spirit... The giving of the Spirit was guaranteed. Jesus earned that in the cross. Ezekiel beautifully described what the cross accomplished for us. Ezekiel 36, 25 through 27. Listen to these stunning words. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Notice the process. God cleans us. He removes our heart of stone. He implants a new heart of flesh in us. He puts His Spirit within us. And He causes us by His grace and power to live obedient lives. The Spirit in believers produces a lifestyle of obedience. Obedience is the outflow of the Spirit from us. Jesus suffered the cross to give us the Holy Spirit to conform us then to His image. What's the real difference between a believer and an unbeliever? It's not sin. We both sin. One huge difference is a believer has the living Holy Spirit in them and therefore has the power not to sin, whereas an unbeliever is dead in sin with no power over sin. Believers often underestimate the power of the Holy Spirit in them. Do you underestimate the power of the Holy Spirit in you? Of what He can do in your life. The tremendous blessing and victory that He can bring you when you trust Him and walk with Him. If you have authentic belief or faith, then you have the Holy Spirit to help you obey what Jesus asks you to obey. He helps you fight to win. That kind of tenacious, I will not lose this. Jesus can give that to you. Rivers of living water will overflow from you in holiness and obedience as you trust in Christ. Belief is absolutely essential. The identity of Jesus divides. Some really believe, some intellectually believe, and others never believe. Verse 43. So there was a division among the people over him. Jesus divides. He divides. Watch their different responses continuing, or actually back in verse 40. When they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? 
So there was a division among the people over him. A prophet is someone who interprets the will of God and who speaks the truth to the people. God told his people in Deuteronomy 18 that he would raise up a prophet from among Israel who would speak his words. And some thought that Jesus was that prophet. Others thought Jesus was the Christ or God's anointed Messiah, the great deliverer. They were separating the prophet and the Christ role and they could not see that Jesus was the fulfillment of both. Jesus was both. And then still others were skeptical about the whole thing. They, they knew Jesus, the Christ would, uh, come, would not come from Galilee, but from Bethlehem in Judea and would be from the line of David. So Jesus for them did not fit the mold, even though he fulfilled every messianic prophecy in the Old Testament. He was from the line of David. He was born in Bethlehem. So the people were divided over Jesus and people are still divided over Jesus. Let's get really practical and apply this. Many people at that feast knew Jesus could do miracles. They knew that. They knew that his teaching was profound and they knew that it was unlike anything that they'd ever heard. And yet what got in the way was his hometown. His hometown got in the way. Actually, their misinformation about his hometown Jesus had sufficiently proven himself. I mean, what do you need to do to convince people you are God? All of the miracles and the teaching that he did, it's conclusive evidence. Yet ignorance got in their way. Not only that, they were not ready to come to grips with the sinfulness of their own hearts. And so Jesus was simply unappealing. Evidence is really important, folks, but there comes a point when you need to simply trust Christ. Even though you may still have questions, even though you may have doubts, even though all of the Bible might not make sense, you need to overcome doubt and hesitation with repentance and faith, not conclusive evidence. Are you following me? For the unbeliever, doubt or unbelief is understood to exist because of inconclusive evidence outside of them Therefore, making doubt appear rational and intelligent like the people who saw Galilee and thought, this guy can't be the one because we know his hometown. But their ignorance was the problem. They perceived his hometown as convincing evidence outside of themselves, invalidating his potential identity as the Christ. But their problem was actually ignorance in them, which led to doubt or unbelief. And though doubt is common... Even in the lives of Christians, it is never to be celebrated. Doubt must be rightly assessed as a problem inside of us that must be repented of and fought by faith. There are some things in the Bible that are really difficult for us to reconcile. They they don't perfectly make sense. They don't fit within sometimes, and, and we get confused about that. But the problem is not the Bible, nor is it Jesus, nor is it reality. The problem is our perception of reality. We are prone to err. We misperceive. We misunderstand. We misapply, just like they did with the origin of Jesus. Doubt is natural. It's natural. We've been there. But it's sinful. It's sinful because it does not proceed from faith. The Bible says, for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin, Romans 14, 23. Doubt is not from faith, so it is therefore sin. And some in the church today, if, you, if you're reading and keeping 
uh, tabs on the, the church in general, doubt and skepticism somehow has crept in to be almost something to applaud, almost something favorable. For the believer, doubt is a result of the sinful nature and must be fought and overcome with repentance and faith, not mere evidence, even though the evidence is extremely important. Remember the honest man from Mark 9 who cried out, I believe, help my unbelief. Now we can learn something from that. He first trusted, he first took the step of belief and then he asked Jesus to help him with his doubt. Augustine wrote, do not seek to understand in order to believe, but believe in order to understand. The evidence for Jesus is there. I'm not denying that. There's all kinds of evidence to validate Jesus Christ. But in order to truly know and understand, you must believe. Evidence alone will not unite you to Jesus. Faith unites you to Jesus. Andreas Kostenberger wrote, The basic human dilemma is not ignorance needing education. It is sinfulness needing redemption. Evidence never convinced anyone to be an atheist. Sin did. We will truly know and understand when we repent and trust Christ alone to save us. Only then will the evidence be seen in stunning clarity to build faith and confidence in the truth. You know, apologetics is, I think, just as much for Christians as it is for non-Christians because it builds our faith. We, we see the evidence and we're like, oh man, I never saw that before. That totally brings that. How can you people not see it? How can you not see the glory of Jesus for all that he is? This stuff makes sense. It's coherent. It's logical. It squares with science. And yet, so many are just so blind because of sin. Sin's the enemy, not people. Sin brings people down. It destroys lives. Never forget that where Jesus is spoken, division ensues. Not everyone will see Jesus and believe. Not everyone will heed our evangelism. Not everyone will listen to our preaching. Rejection doesn't necessarily mean that we're doing something wrong. If we love people and we present the gospel faithfully, Division is unavoidable. But remember, some will believe. Some will believe. Our ace in the hole is not evidence. It is the gospel as we call people to repent and believe, and some will. The truth of Jesus Christ is so powerful, it confronts, confounds, and contains the fiercest opposition. Confronts, confounds, and contains. Verse 44 repeats the truth of verse 30. Though they wanted to arrest him, no one laid a hand on him because the sovereign will of God did not ordain it. And so his hour had not yet come. Jesus had been confronting people all along in the book of John, but his truth also confounds. Listen to what happens in verses 45 and 46. It is absolutely awesome. I love this. The officers came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, why did you not bring him? The officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. Isn't that great? I love that. Back in verse 32, the chief priests and the Pharisees sent these temple officials, these police officers, if you will, to arrest Jesus. And they went and they heard what he was saying and they came back without him. The priests and the Pharisees were like, what in the world? Where is he? Why didn't you bring him back? We sent you to bring him back. Where is he? 
Mission not accomplished. Why? Because he spoke like no one else. He spoke like no one else. It was like the man who went to the store to pick up, uh, for his wife to pick up some milk, and when he encountered the charismatic Stromboli salesman uh, handing out free samples, he came home with three Strombolis and no milk. And when his wife asked him where the milk was, he said, still in aisle 20, I I couldn't get past the Stromboli salesman. One thing is true about those officers. They were stunned into inaction. What do we do? Listen to him. I don't even know what to do. His majesty and the influence of his speech were so great they couldn't do anything. They were diffused by his rhetoric. No one ever spoke like this man. Had they considered the eloquence of Pericles or the masterful rhetoric of Socrates or even the fluent expression of Demosthenes, all superlative orators prior to Jesus, Jesus surpassed them all. No one in history spoke like Jesus. Power, authority, conviction, truth, joy. He has no rival. Not only did Jesus confront the world with truth, not only did he confound the most biblically literate and astute minds, but his teaching contained, or you could say restrained, the evil plots of the chief priests and Pharisees and Levitical temple police. He shut their plans down by his authoritative words. Inaction. Don't know what to do with this man. That's influence. That's intellectual supremacy. That's what God does by his sovereign power. And I want you to see this morning the dangerous effects of unbelief. I want you to look closely and see the potency of unbelief, how it leads to horrific things. Unbelief causes the worst of things. The Holocaust, the gulags and eradications of the Soviet Union, the Cambodian genocide, all driven by unbelief. Unbelief promotes unthinkable carnage. Unbelief is a web spun of deceit, injustice, and aggressive hypocrisy. Look at John 7, 47 and following. The Pharisees answered him, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Their unbelief was deceitful, unjust, and completely hypocritical. How was it deceitful? To start, they concealed their death plots. That was not something they seemed particularly open about. They lied about Jesus. In verse 47, they imply that Jesus is a liar, a false teacher. Then in verse 52, they said, no prophet arises from Galilee. Historically untrue. Jonah, Nahum, and possibly Hosea, all Old Testament prophets, men familiar to these Jews, all came from Galilee. Either the Jews were ignorant of that or conveniently forgetful or deceitful themselves. But either way, their own prejudice and unbelief blinded them to the truth. Another thing to see in this passage is the irony. Jesus used amazing irony. These chief priests and Pharisees said, have any of the authorities 
the religious elitists with the power? Or the Pharisees believed in him? That's a pompous question. That's religious smack talk, if you will. And John includes this sweet irony because in their midst is Nicodemus. Nicodemus, who talked with Jesus in chapter 3 and who appeared to favor Jesus perhaps was close at this moment to believing in Jesus himself. Nicodemus eventually trusted in Christ. Nicodemus was one of the guys, along with Joseph Arimathea, to bury the body of Jesus. In verse 51, Nicodemus brought up a point that worked in Jesus' favor. And so their sarcastic question is ironic and even somewhat prophetic. Later on in John 12, 42, we find out that many of the authorities believed in Jesus. They came to faith. In Acts 15.5, we find that some of the Pharisees became Christians. Paul was a Pharisee, the Pharisee of Pharisees, and he was converted by Jesus on the road to Damascus. Sweet irony. I love what John's doing there. How is their unbelief unjust? Well, first of all, their conclusions about Jesus are completely unfair and unfounded, and their arrest warrant unmerited. Additionally, their death plots were unjust. And when Nicodemus challenges them according to their own law that they had set down. In verse 51, they end up mocking him. Nicodemus happened to be right. They all were preemptive in their judgment. Rabbinical tradition said this, unless a mortal hears the pleas that a man can put forward, he is not able to give judgment. And that rabbinical tradition squares with Deuteronomy 1.17 and Deuteronomy 19.17 and 18, which suggests impartiality or hearing everyone for a fair trial. The Jews of John 7 were responding in rage, not in justice. How is their unbelief hypocrisy? Well, the, the Pharisees demeaned and lowered the, the common people who didn't know the law, who were ignorant of the law, and at the same time, they ignored the law themselves. They disregarded the law or they were ignorant themselves. They, they never acknowledged the point Nicodemus made. They just scorned him. And as they condemn others, their own actions condemned them. They were so bitter and abandoned their own belief system. Can you see what unbelief does to people? The most righteous people in the world were acting with deceit and injustice and hypocrisy because they opposed Christ. Voltaire was the famous prolific writer of the French Enlightenment. Maybe he was an atheist. Maybe he was a deist. Either way, he was an unbeliever who said that Christianity was, quote, Assuredly, the most ridiculous, the most absurd, and the most bloody religion which has ever infected this world. He once said of Jesus Christ, curse the wretch. In 20 years, Christianity will be no more. My single hand will destroy the edifice it took 12 apostles to rear. Unbelief poisons the soul, my friends. In the last moments of Voltaire's life, his physician said he cried out, I am abandoned by God and man. I will give you half of what I am worth if you will give me six months of life. Then I shall go to hell and you will go with me. Oh Christ, oh Jesus Christ. Apparently, after his horrific death, Voltaire's nurse said, for all the wealth in Europe, I would not see another unbeliever die. Unbelief is horrifying. 
unbelief rots the soul forever. My friends, be so entranced by the masterful words of Jesus that you come to him as the wellspring of your soul. It is true, no one ever spoke like Jesus. Jesus spoke the words of God. The words that he spoke were life, our life. Jesus said, if you hear his word and believe him, you have eternal life and you have passed from death into life. The masterful words of Jesus, if you believe them, have the power to escort you from death into life and liberate you from God's coming judgment. Listen to Jesus Hear him. Be enthralled, but be sure you believe. Come to him as the wellspring of your soul. Thirst for him, and then come to him and drink of him. Drink of him by faith. Drink his words. Enjoy him. Be refreshed and satisfied. And Jesus promises that out of your heart will flow rivers of living water. No one ever spoke like this man. Let's pray. God, we give you all the credit and the glory. We love you. We love your son who is amazing just to listen to how incredibly truthful he was giving us the words of life. And God, I pray that you will work in the hearts of the hearers this morning of your inspired word, that you will provoke faith in them by your sovereign grace and that they would believe and that they would listen to Jesus and then understand and see all the evidence for what it is. God, we need you to fall on this place and to fall on our community. I pray for Penryn and Mannheim and Lidditz and E-Town and Landisville and Leola and Brownstown. God, all of Lancaster County that people would awake to see the great glory and splendor of Jesus Christ, that they would hear his persuasive and powerful words and that they would come to him and drink deeply. God, my prayer is simple. Let us simply be impressed with Jesus, impressed enough to believe in his name. Amen.